we are working our way through the book of Ephesians this summer. We have uh, chapter 5 to finish today, and then we will have several sermons in chapter 6 coming up. We're talking about practical Christianity, so we're trying to to have the gospel bear on on just normal, regular aspects of life. And today we'll be talking about marriage, how to love your spouse. So how do we practically take the gospel and apply it to our marriages? So that's our, our plan today. It doesn't get any more practical than marriage in my book. Now, uh, before we get into that, and I'll, I'll make an introduction and talk about our culture a little bit as well, but let me uh, just briefly a word to the singles. Okay, Every time you preach a sermon on marriage, I think there's the potential to exclude a lot of people who are single. And I want to be careful with that, because God has two callings on Christians. For some, there's a calling to be married, and that's a wonderful calling. For some, there's a calling to be single, and again, it's a wonderful calling. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that God in His grace calls some to be single. And there are great advantages to that life that God uses for His kingdom. So if you are single, and you may only be single for another month or two or a couple of years, who knows, but if you are single today, I'd like you to embrace that as a calling of God on your life. You're not deficient in any way. Uh, you're not lacking something because God is sufficient for you in whatever state you are. And please don't battle the pressure from other Christians to marry you off and to, to match you up with somebody. It's okay to be single. It's alright. It's, it's a good calling. And uh, I'd like you to embrace that and to, to use it for God's kingdom. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 talks a lot about singleness as a positive, as a good thing uh, to be used for the kingdom. So that's all I'm going to say about singleness and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it at another sermon. Uh, but as you're listening to a sermon on marriage and being single, uh, this is still applicable to you because at the very least you will, you will hear the gospel through marriage. You will also be able to counsel your marriage friends You'll be able to help them understand Christian marriage better. That's valuable. You can be a better friend by doing that. And also, should God uh, send you a spouse at some point, you will be better prepared for that as well. So, okay, before we get into this text, before I'll read the text, let me say just a few words about the Christian understanding of marriage. When, when we preach on marriage, we're not simply reiterating the ideals of our culture and saying that marriage is supposed to be like this, and everybody agrees on that, and everybody's striving for that. That's not true. There's many ideas of what marriage is supposed to be. There's a biblical idea, there's a Christian idea, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And it is unabashedly rooted in the Gospel. When you think about Christian marriage, it is rooted in the Gospel. What is the Gospel? The Gospel is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, come in here to save sinners through his death, his life, his death and resurrection. And he does that by grace. Jesus came to save us because we need saving. And he saves us by grace, offering salvation to us that is undeserved and often unwanted. And yet he saves us and blesses us anyway. That's the gospel. And when we look at Christian marriage, it is rooted in that. It is patterned after that. It's not patterned after a business agreement. 
Um, it's not patterned after a, a mutually beneficial relationship that you say, you provide these services for me, I will in return provide these services to you. That's, that's the world's idea of marriage. It's not based on those things. It's based in the gospel itself. It's patterned after the way Christ loves his church. You see. And that's why it's, so good. it's always going to be radically different from anything you're going to see on TV or you hear from even the, the quote-unquote family values politician. If it's not rooted in the gospel, it's not a Christian marriage, and maybe in God's eyes it's not marriage even at all. So we've got to look at Scripture and see how does the gospel bear upon marriage. And it's patterned after it. It also points to it. If you look at, at the Christian marriage, you should be able to see the gospel in it. You should be able to not just think about the two people loving each other, but saying the way these people love each other points to Jesus loving the church and the church loving Jesus. And I can see through this into the gospel and bring more glory to God through it. In fact, if you look at the Bible, the point of marriage isn't to make you happy, even though a good marriage will add significantly to your happiness. The point of Christian marriage is the glorification of God. And you have to look at your marriage in those terms. The question is, how does my marriage, how does my relationship with my wife bring glory to God? That's the point. That's why marriage exists. That's how we are to evaluate whether marriage, this marriage is good or not, healthy or not healthy, based on, on that. Now, if an individual or a culture does not embrace such gospel realities as sin and salvation and grace. Any biblical teaching on marriage, such as this morning's teaching on marriage, is going to come across as archaic and irrelevant. That's at best. At best, if you don't embrace the gospel, at best you're going to listen to me and say, this doesn't make sense. Seems like it's just something that other people used to do a long time ago, but, but that's not applicable to me today. At worst, it's going to be offensive. It's going to seem oppressive. It's going to seem regressive, going back to, to some weird time and culture before. So I want you to keep that in mind, that the more you understand the gospel, the more a culture, a society understands the gospel and embraces it, the more Christian marriage is going to make sense. Why? Because it's patterned after the gospel and it points to the gospel. If you take the gospel out of it, it doesn't make sense and at worst, it's going to be offensive. So I will try to do my best today to explain the gospel and apply it to marriage. And I hope that both things will come through clearly in this sermon. You will hear the gospel and you will also see the ideal of, of Christian marriage. So with these thoughts, let's read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, as you can see, just listening to it, Paul goes back and forth between marriage and Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church, and this is how Christ loves the church. That is also how husbands are to love love their wives. Wives, submit to your husbands just like the church does to Christ. So Paul takes two realities, marriage and Christ's relationship with his church, and he parallels them. He says these are very similar. One is rooted in the other. One reflects the other. So for us to understand how husbands are to love their wives, how wives are to love their husbands, we need to understand the relationship between Christ and his church. So that's what we're going to do first today. So our outline is very simple. We're going to look at Christ and the church first. Then we're going to look at the husband's relationship to his wife. And I'm going to address the husbands primarily in that. And lastly, we're going to talk about the wife's relationship with her husband. So church, husband, wife is the progression we're going to take. So let's talk about Christ and his church, or his bride, as is often called in Scripture. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So how does Christ love the church? Well, number one, he loves the church graciously. He loves the church graciously, by grace. He initiates that relationship. If you are a careful reader of Scripture, you will notice that some of the language that Paul is using here in Ephesians 5 is very similar to the language that's used in Ezekiel 16. There's a a passage, there's a, a parable about the Lord and His people in Ezekiel 16 that describes the love of Yahweh, the love of the Lord, for his people. And Paul is using very similar language. So I'll summarize. It's a long passage. I won't read it. But I'll summarize it. That story is, is about a man representing God who finds a baby girl, a newborn baby girl, discarded by the side of the road, covered in blood, naked, umbilical cords still not cut, just born and discarded without any care for her well-being or safety or life. This man has compassion on the baby girl and so he washes her with water. That's why Paul is using that in Ephesians 5. It's not referring to baptism. It's just that language from Ezekiel 16. He washes her with water. He cleanses her. He cleans her up. He does what should have been done when, when she was born. He feeds her. He takes care of her. He provides clothes for her. And he cares for her until she grows up. And he kind of visits her. In the story, he visits her and and, and cares for her. He's very gentle with her. And then she grows up 
And she becomes a beautiful woman. And he marries her. Now, what's the point of the story? The point is that there was nothing to attract his love for her at first. He just saw a baby that's about to die. There's nothing that she could offer to him. And yet, he sacrifices himself, takes care of her, cleanses her, washes her, feeds her, clothes her, and then she grows up to be beautiful. She does not start out beautiful. She is beautiful because he made her beautiful. And then she takes her as his bride. He takes her as his bride. So what do we see here? We see grace. Just like in the New Testament, we see grace. God looks at us and says, there's nothing in you that would make me love you, but I love you anyway. So his relationship with us is not based in our performance or whatever we have to offer to him. We have nothing to offer. We're a baby at the side of the road, newborn baby, umbilical cord still not cut. We can't survive unless God comes and he takes us and he cares for us and he loves us. By grace, unearned. You see, his love for us is based in his mercy and in his grace. It's based in himself and not in us. It's, it's a fallacy for us to think that somehow we are in such a way, or there's something about us that makes God obligated to love us. He is not obligated to love us. But he chooses to love us. Praise God, he does. Why? Out of his own nature, out of his own character. He's a loving God. He's compassionate and merciful and gracious. And so he loves us. Now, look at Ephesians 5. Christ loves the church. The church meaning his people, the believers. Why does he love us? Because we're lovely? Because we're lovable? No. Because he is loving. Because he is gracious. You know that passage in Romans 5 where it says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He expressed his love and commitment for us while we were still sinners. Meaning what? We didn't want him? We didn't, we didn't care for him. We didn't want to change. We didn't think we needed him. And he already died for us. How can that be? It can be because he's gracious. Because he initiates the relationship with us. He starts courting us. He proposes marriage to us. He says, I will make you beautiful. He sees the potential in us that could be reached through his care. And so we respond to that grace, but we don't initiate. So God loves his people graciously. Christ loves his church graciously. Number two, Christ loves us sacrificially. Jesus gave himself up for the church. He died for the church, gave his life for the church. On the cross, Jesus died for those he loved. His death was the supreme expression of his love for the church. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to give his life for us. Now that's love, right? You love watching movies, don't you? Reading books, the romantic stories of, of a lover dying for, for his or her beloved. That touches us, doesn't it? It moves us somehow. There's these stories that survive centuries with that plot. Why? It hearkens to the bigger story. It points to the bigger story of Christ dying for his church. That's why it touches us. 
because it gives us a glimpse of the greater reality of Christ dying for his people. So loves us, he so loves us that he died for us. Number three, Christ loves us purposefully. He loves us graciously and sacrificially, but also purposefully. He seeks our greatest good. Why did Jesus die? Was it just a romantic gesture? Was it just a, to show us how much he loved us? No, that showed us how much he loved us, but it was more than that. There was a purpose behind his death, and the purpose was to save us and to help us and to bless us. So when Christ died for us, he gave us something we needed. What is it? Forgiveness, right? Eternal life, reconciliation with God, our guilt is taken away, our shame is taken away, his death paid for our sins. He died in place of us on our behalf. So we don't have to die the separation from God forever. All that's left for us is a physical death and it's just a portal into the eternal reality of God. Now, he died for us so that he could get at our best interest, at our best, at our greatest good. Because he died... Now we have all these blessings in Christ that we've talked about as we looked at the book of Ephesians. And so he died so he could present his bride in splendor and in beauty and in glory. I, when I think about it, and especially when you start thinking about your own marriage, and you start making those parallels as we will in, in a minute, it, it, it has to move you, right? You think about Christ who says, I'm going to do everything I can so these people would be as beautiful and as glorious as possible. He's not saying, I'm going to make them presentable. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I'm going to clean them up a little bit so, they're not, so their appearance is not shocking. No, he's saying there will be no wrinkle. There will be no blemish. He's saying, I'll present them in splendor. What a great word, splendor. You've been to weddings, right? When, when, when the bride comes down the aisle and everybody's just in awe, right? That she's just so beautiful. And everything just seems to stop and you just think, what a beauty. Now imagine that Christ wants us to be that. He wants us to be absolutely beautiful, absolutely glorious, presented in splendor. And so he is doing everything that he's doing in your life right now, everything that he's done for you already, he's doing so he would present you in splendor, without any imperfection, that you would be glorious and beautiful. That's his goal for the relationship with you. You think, some of you think that, oh, he just did the minimum, right? You were destined for hell because you're a sinner and, and Christ took care of that, and now there's no punishment coming to you, but... It's such a small-minded way to look at the gospel. Christ says, I'm going to do that, for, of course. Of course, that's a need. But I'm going to give you so much more. I'm going to make you beautiful. I'm going to make you perfect. And that's what he's doing. So lastly, four, how does Christ love, love his church? He loves her intimately, uniting himself to her. I mean that, that Jesus connected himself to the church, to his people, in such a way that he bound up his own interests with hers, with ours. Paul says that Christ sanctified the church. 
What does sanctify mean? That's one of those words we throw around at church. Nobody else uses it by us. So sanctification just means separation. It means that Christ took the church, took the people, right, and separated themselves the, them for himself. He's taken them and set them apart to be his people, to be his bride exclusively for a relationship with him. Which means that he has forever connected and united himself to his bride. Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. You know that that's what the church is called in scriptures, his body. That's how close Christ is to the church. He's saying, I'm going to treat you as myself, as my own body. And so whatever is good for the church is good for Christ. Whatever is good for Christ is good for the church. There's very little separation there left. And that's why you, you may hear me pray sometimes. I would pray for God's glory and our benefit. I would say, God, do this for your glory and for the benefit of your church or benefit of your, your people. Those are the same thing. God's glory is our benefit. Our benefit is, is God's glory. They're, they're united because Christ decided to love us intimately, being in union with us. Now, that's how Christ loves the church. Now, let's apply it. How does then the husband love his wife? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So keep all those things in the back of your mind. And now let's transfer them to the relationship of marriage. What should husbands do? They should love their wives. That's the main commandment. You should love your wives. How should they do that? As Christ loved the church. Number one, graciously. Christ loves us graciously. Husbands are to love their wives graciously. Now one of the, the hardest questions that, at least in my mind, that I ask during premarital counseling, when, we, when somebody and a couple is getting ready to be married, uh, typically they would go through six or seven sessions with me or someone else uh, to, to prepare for marriage. And so one of the biggest, hardest questions I ask in the very first session is, are you prepared to love your spouse even if they're not able to respond to your love? What if something happens? And it could be an accident. It could be illness. It could be addiction. It could be depression. Whatever that is. And that they're not able or they're not willing to reciprocate your love, to respond to your love, to do their part of the marriage. Would you still love them? And I want to ask that question right, right up front because I want the couple to think about their relationship in those terms. And it's a hard question to answer. But the way you answer that question would reveal to you whether you're basing your relationship with your future spouse on grace or you're basing it on contractual obligation. If you do this, I will do that. And you see, Christian marriage being a reflection of the gospel, the way Christ loves the church, tells us that we are to love our spouses by grace. When you say, even when you're not lovable, even when you are not lovely, even when you don't love me, I will still love you. Why? Because Christ loves the church. And my marriage is to reveal that to the world. So I will still love you, 
even when I'm not getting anything out of this anymore. Because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is glorified in this. Do you see how when you take the Gospel seriously, that's going to change everything in your life, including your idea of marriage. When the world tells us, our culture tells us, when your spouse can no longer provide for you what they have promised, you're free to go. You can terminate the contract because they broke the rules. What does the Gospel say? The Gospel say, there's no rules. There was no contract. You have decided to love them because Christ loves the church. And when you decided to love them, you decided to love them graciously, which is, by the way, is reflected in your wedding vows. Right? The parts that everybody conveniently forgets a couple of days into the marriage. Right? In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, in life or death. Why do we say that? We're saying to emphasize that I love you not for what you bring to me. I don't love you because, ultimately because you're beautiful. I don't love you because you have money. I don't love you because you're smart. I don't even love you because you have a great sense of humor, which seems to be the number one on everybody's list when, when you're attracted to somebody. It's the sense of humor. I, right away, I heard a joke around. That was it. I'm in love. The sense of humor. That sealed it. I, I think it's a lie, but people say that. So, when that's gone, what happens when that's gone? When looks go, when money goes, when health goes, what happens? Are you done? That's what the world tells us. Yeah, it's all right. It's okay to be done. Because they're not, all, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing for you. So you don't have to do what you're supposed to be doing for them. But not according to the Gospel. The Gospel says, I will love you because Christ loved the church graciously. Now, the second is sacrificially. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and to sacrifice themselves for them. It means that the husband is to give up himself for the sake of his wife. The husband is to serve his wife. He's to give up certain preferences and plans to help her. He's not just to do something for her when it coincides with his interests. No, he's to sacrifice for her. Let's, let's give some examples for that. In the most trivial sense, you will see sacrificial love when you see a husband being considerate of his wife. Just being considerate. Noticing, for example, that she likes the car to be gassed up, gas tank to be full before she goes on a trip. The husband would do that before him, maybe the night before, so she doesn't have to do it because she doesn't like doing that. You've sac- the husband has sacrificed a little bit of time, went and did that for her because he knows she likes it. And it's just being considerate, right? Maybe it's getting up a little earlier and having a cup of coffee ready for her when she wakes up. Right? Just considerate. Nothing. It's not a big deal. But you see sacrificial love in that, don't you? Somebody says, I, I can get up early. That's okay. I'll miss out a little bit of sleep because I love her and I want to do something nice for her. Maybe it's noticing that she's tired and saying, well, I'll do what you were supposed to do. I know, I know you weren't supposed to do it, but that's okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do the dishes after dinner, whatever, I'll cook or whatever. I'll, I'll run an errand for you, I'll do whatever you were supposed to do. And you're sacrificing a little bit of time, a little bit of your energy. Now you know there are guys, and, and all of us guys are that guy at some point, by the way. 
So don't exclude yourself or myself from this description. But there are these guys who would say, well, I just don't do that. I just don't do that. Diapers, I just don't do that. I don't do it. Laundry, I, I don't do that. I draw the line right there. Laundry, I just don't do it. Cleaning, I just don't do that. And it seems to be just a very, I don't know how that line gets drawn or who, who does that, but it seems to be very clear to the person. It's just like this is the line and I just don't cross over. So whatever other things are outside of, of, of what I do, I can do that you know, in here. But out here, I just don't do it. And so don't talk to me about it. You know, I just don't do it. Just accept it. Now, what does that tell you about the relationship? Who is the person thinking about at that moment? Is it sacrificial? No, of course not. The point of marriage is that exactly that, that you do things that you just don't do. That's what you do for your wife. You said, yeah, I really dislike doing this, but I'll do it for you. And I'll do it, probably disliking doing it, but I'll do it for you. Why? I'm sacrificing myself for you. That's that's how I'm to love you, because Christ sacrificed himself for, for me. There's one thing God doesn't do either. Did you know that? God doesn't die, which is something he doesn't do. That's outside of his line. That's where he draws the line. And Christ died for you. Why? He loves you. And so he sacrifices himself for you. And so a Christian husband would do the same thing. He would say, I never thought I would do that. I never thought I'd be doing this. But because I'm married to you and I love you, of course I'll do that. I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. Now, those are trivial examples. But as you think about the relationship, and if you are a husband, as you think about your relationship, what do you sacrifice? Can you point to specific sacrifices in your marriage? Have you sacrificed time, sleep, energy, rest? Are you working two jobs because you know your wife needs something, your family needs something, you're sacrificing, you're working hard, harder than you'd like to, to provide for your family. That's sacrifice, and it's normal. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's normal for the Christian marriage. Number three, the husbands are to love their wives purposefully, seeking their greatest good, just like Jesus. All that sacrifice is not random. It's not just about making a cup of coffee and taking out the trash. You know, that's, that's fine and it's important, but there's a greater purpose here. The husband is to advance his wife's interests and well-being. Christ works to present the church in splendor. So must the husband. The husband should frequently ask himself, how can I love my wife today in order to make her more glorious? and more beautiful, and more accomplished. Imagine, men, if we would do that. If you would ask yourself that question frequently, saying, what can I do today? How can I serve my wife? What can I rearrange in our life so that she would be more beautiful, and more glorious, and more accomplished? What do I need to do to help her? Help her grow, and help her develop, help her to, to realize the desires that God has given her? Now, I want to be a little careful with that because sometimes, and I I see that happening, the husband would say, I'm just going to do everything my wife wants. And by that, they explain it away by saying, well, I'm just just pursuing her well-being. So whatever she wants, she can have. Never contradict her. That's not really 
pursuing her well-being. It's just simply agreeing with her idea of her well-being. See, the husband, a good husband, is, is a counselor. He's an advisor. He's an observer of the wife's happiness. He knows her so well that he can tell when she's making a decision that is not good for her, when she's pursuing a path that is not good for her. And he's there to encourage her and to confront her, to, to change her mind, to convince her to go the way that she needs to go. That means Holy Spirit needs to be involved. That means Scripture needs to be involved. We need to be smart and wise and prayerful about it. But the husband's job is to stop the wife when she's not going the way that she needs to go and to encourage her to go the way that she needs to go. The husband should develop and support a way of life that promotes his wife's spiritual, physical, and emotional health. Let's think about marital life like that. And for some wives, that means a career outside of the home. Because that's going to contribute to her greatest well-being and health. For some, that means career inside of the home. And staying with the children and raising the children, taking care of the house. The husband needs to accommodate that. The husband needs to know his wife well enough to know which one is appropriate for her. And then you organize your family life in pursuit of that. Now, just one little application. The husband is the spiritual leader, which really means a spiritual servant. The husband is supposed to create an atmosphere where the wife and the children are spiritually encouraged, they're saturated in Scripture, there's prayer in the house. That is on the husband, that's not on the wife. There are many godly spiritual women who do that in their homes, and we are thankful for that. But it is the husband's job to create an atmosphere where these things happen, where the gospel is clear, where there's, let's be more practical, family devotions, family prayer. That the gospel is continuously reiterated. When you're dealing with a child and you're saying, how is school going? Why are you fighting with your friends? Why are you getting bad grades? That your solution to that is the gospel. You're talking, you're having spiritual conversations. You're praying together about it. That's spiritual leadership. So you husbands, are you spiritual leaders in the home? Now, I don't mean a domineering kind of, you know, we're going to pray for two hours every night kind of a deal. No, I'm talking about somebody who's, who's discerning, somebody who knows the needs of, of everybody in the house and is careful to, to support and encourage people to grow spiritually. Now, last trait of the husband's love is, is he is to love his wife intimately, uniting himself to her. Uh, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's a quote from Genesis. The biblical roles of leadership and submission, love and respect, are to be practiced in the context of an intimate, one-flesh union. His interests are her interests, and her well-being is his well-being. How do you respond to Christian husbands who say, I am in charge, whatever I say goes, with no consideration for anybody else in the family, and they're saying, I am fulfilling my mandate to be the head of the household? They're not. 
They're fulfilling their mandate to be the head of their own life and their own agenda. But if they're not connected with people in the house, if the husband is not one flesh with the wife, where their interests have become the same, that's not the leadership that the Bible is talking about. The Bible is not talking about a tyrannical leadership. We're talking about loving, caring, sacrificial, knowing leadership in the home. You see, the world pits spouses against each other. You look at, you look at sitcoms and you, you hear, you, know, you li- read the social commentaries on marriage today, and it's typically it's, it's his career against her career. Which one is going to win? Who's going to take over? Who's going to succeed and who's going to submit? Right? It's his dreams versus her dreams. Now, whose dreams are we pursuing now? Is it your turn? Is it my turn? Right? His education versus her education. How do we spend our money? Whose, whose degree should we pursue uh, this year? It's his buddies versus her girlfriends. Right? Who, who gets to go out? And there's, there's a conflict about it. It's his shows versus her shows. Right? And now, with the advancement of technology, you can have a TV in every room of the house. You don't have to see each other anymore. You can watch whatever shows you want. But there's always that conflict. There's always like there's, there's two parties, and they're struggling for control. Who's going to pursue what they want to pursue? And then you look at Scripture, and Scripture says, wait a second, this is one flesh. This union is one flesh. They're so close together, there is no difference between her interests and his interests. They're the same. They're working together. That God has given them a vision for their marriage and they're pursuing it together. There's no conflict. There's no competition. They have assumed biblical roles given by God and they're pursuing this life together. They're not competing. They're not fighting against each other. Now that's really important for us to grasp. The marriage that is presented in the world is not the marriage that's presented in Scripture. And we need to be careful not to read those ideas into our marriages. Well, my last portion, and as the briefest one, and that's on purpose because I wanted to spend the most time on Christ and the church and on husband and the wife and how they are to love their wives because those are, I think, what causes the wife to respond in a biblical way. So this is the word to the wives. Wives submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The word here is submit. And friends, I realize how it sounds. Let me just say, I know how it sounds. It is uncomfortable. Our culture rejects it. it. It stinks of oppression and exploitation, right? But remember the context. What is the context here? Who is this wife submitting to? The Christ-like husband. The husband who loves her. The husband who is pursuing her, her best, best interests. The husband who has sacrificed himself for her. And her natural response, of course, is to submit. Submit in what way? To follow his leadership. To accept him. Another word would be to respect. That's what Paul uses later in the past. She says, wives, respect your husbands. And as the wives respect their husbands, the husbands will love them more. And as the husbands love them more, the wife would respect them more. 
It's a mutual, it's a reciprocal relationship. And with the gospel at its center, friends, it works. It works. It doesn't have to be tyrannical from the husband's perspective. It doesn't have to be exploitative for the wife. It doesn't have to be. Now, have we made it that sure? I have no problem confessing the sins of the church that many husbands have made this about domination and they have rejected this biblical idea of sacrifice. They've made it about themselves and so the wife is there to serve them as they pursue their goals. That's not the Christian marriage. But nonetheless, the proper role for the wife is to follow and to respect and to submit. And her submission is simply an extension of her submission to the Lord. As the wife looks to Christ and says, you loved me. You loved me so much that you gave your life for me. How do you want me now to live my life? Because I trust you enough that I will conform my life to your idea of what it should be. And the wife humbly submits herself to her husband. Now let me read a quote from a commentator. Peter O'Brien says, The idea of subordination to authority in general, as well as in the family, is out of favor in a world which prizes permissiveness and freedom. Christians are often affected by these attitudes. Subordination smacks of exploitation and oppression that are deeply resented. But authority is not synonymous with tyranny. And the submission to which the apostle refers does not imply inferiority. Wives and husbands have different God-appointed roles, but all have equal dignity because they have been made in the divine image and in Christ have put on the new person who is created to be like God. This is really important for us to hear. Biblical submission does not imply inferiority. Christ submitted to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ submitted to the Father. Christ is not inferior to the Father. They have the same divine essence, the same nature. Christ is God in the same way. Yet, He submitted to the Father for a particular role in the redemption history. In fact, Christ's humility is considered to be beautiful, right? We celebrate Christ's humility. Why don't we celebrate the humility of the Christian wife? When it's done appropriately, when it's done for the sake of the gospel, when it's done for the glory of God, friends, it is a beautiful thing. It's not demeaning. It's not oppressive. It's not exploitative. It is a beautiful and a glorious thing. Now notice that there's no command to the husband to rule their wife. There's no command to force her into submission. That is completely inappropriate in the Christian home. In fact, the husband is responsible for his part, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The wife is responsible for her part, to submit and to respect her husband for the sake of the gospel and the Lord. When these commandments are given, love, submit, they're given to free individuals, to responsible people, that God commands individually to respond in an appropriate way to his idea of marriage. This is important for us to see, that the wife and the husband in marriage are both individuals standing before God, and God says, now you live in light of the gospel. I don't want you to make sure she lives in light of the gospel. I don't want you to make sure he lives in light of the gospel. You're responsible for your own lives. 
So respond appropriately to what God has given you. Now my last thought, and then we'll, we'll take communion. The gospel is central. And if you're wrestling with the idea of sacrificial leadership, if you're wrestling with the idea of, of humble gospel submission in the home, please consider the gospel. Jesus came to make things new. Jesus came to reverse the curse of Adam and to bring new life into our homes and into our families and into our workplaces. And the way he does this is he corrects what was distorted by sin. Why is that? That out of all the commands that could be given to husband and wife, the two that are given here is for the husband to love, sacrificially, and for the wife to submit humbly. Why those two? Well, if you go back to Genesis 3.16, there's a curse that comes out of the fall of humanity. And the curse is that, this is talking to the wife, God says, your desire shall be for your husband. Meaning that the wife will, will try to rule and control her husband. And he, the husband, shall rule over you. Two problems here. The wife will, will try to assume control and try to exploit the husband, try to manipulate him, try to control him. And the husband will rule her instead of loving her. That he would be so forceful with her that he would exert strength over her. That that no longer is biblical leadership. Two problems. The husbands are too harsh. The wives are trying to manipulate or trying to take control. That's sin's influence on marriage. Jesus comes and says, let's address this. Let's correct it. How do you correct it? He's saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Don't rule them like that because that's part of the curse. You love them. Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't try to manipulate them. Don't try to... Try to to, to control them. Submit to them and love them and respect them. And so this kind of sacrifice and humility, they will renew marriage. So as you think about your own marriage, it's difficult because some of you have difficult marriages. We know people that are connected to the church that are struggling, they're going through a divorce, they're separated, they're very dysfunctional relationships. Let me encourage you to take care of your own part of it. If you're a wife in marriage, respect your husband. And that will build him up to love you better. If you're a husband in that relationship, love your wife. Cherish and nourish her. And that will help her respect you. Put the gospel at the center. Think of Christ's love for the church and the church's response to Christ as you think about your marriage. Now we're going to take communion and as you come to the table, you see exactly what we've been talking about. You see Jesus loving the church, giving himself up for her, loving her as he loves himself, binding his interests with yours. So we see his body broken, his blood spilled, and you're welcome to come to this table. Why? Because Christ loved you. He got you. He courted you and he married you. And you're his now. And I'm sorry if it makes guys uncomfortable to talk about it. You're the bride of Christ. He loves you. And so you come as the bride of Christ. You come down the aisle at church and you come to the altar and you say, Jesus loves me. I know this because of the cross and the empty tomb. And as I come to him, I know that whatever he's doing in my life right now, 
which includes your sickness, which includes your marital difficulties, which includes your wayward children, which includes your money issues. All of that he's doing to present you in splendor and in glory and in beauty. If you're not a believer, I pray that whatever your thoughts on marriage may be, I pray that you heard the gospel, that you heard of Christ's love for you, and that you would respond appropriately. If you're not a believer, don't come to the table. If you're not his bride, don't go down the aisle. But come to him. Embrace him as your beloved.